Take your Bible, please, and turn with me to um, Acts chapter 2, the New Testament book of Acts chapter 2. Last week, we considered the spiritual gift of tongues as seen in the opening section of this chapter. Um, after the service, I enjoyed many just wonderful conversations, uh, even some conversations after Sunday and some emails that came in and out. And I just clearly, um, uh, this touched a nerve in a positive way. And I appreciate all of the feedback. Well, after the service last Sunday, I enjoyed a conversation with Jim and Jan Cookson about the gift of tongues uh, in which they relate a story worth sharing. It was in the early 1970s in Davis. They were being discipled by an older couple whose names were Dick and Barb. And this couple was actively discipling a number of university students, mostly new Christians. One day, while talking with Barb, Jan heard about how one of the students had gone to them the week before for counsel. A fairly new believer, he told them he'd been studying the Bible and sharing his faith with an unbeliever, a foreign student from an island somewhere in the Pacific. Well, after the study, as this new believer and the unbeliever, they were praying together, and this new believer suddenly began to speak in a language he didn't know, which happened to be in the native tongue and specific dialect of the unbeliever sitting next to him. His words were brief, but obviously very powerful, this is what the man said. This is what the unbeliever said to the believer. Those words were directly for me from God. How could you possibly have known our language? There are only about 250 people on our island who speak with that dialect. Now, the believer was just as surprised <laughs> because being new in his faith, he didn't even know about spiritual gifts or the gift of tongues. But as you can imagine, this had a wonderful strengthening effect on his faith and apparently led the unbeliever to faith in Christ as well. So church, I just want to share that with you to remind you that this stuff is real. And it affects real people in our real world. Because, hear me on this, when God comes into your life, things change. There's a transformation that takes place, and it's not because... It's not because you're turning over a new leaf or you're making things happen in your own power. It's transformation from the inside out that occurs under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. 
15 different people groups from across the known world were represented in the crowd gathering in Jerusalem that day, and yet they each heard these simple Galileans talking about the mighty works of God in their own language. Here's, as if that's not interesting enough, here's where it gets really intriguing. Initially, some of them said, what does this mean? While others dismissed them entirely and even accused them of drunkenness. And as I thought about that this week, isn't that the basic response of people in our world today? They hear about Christ and have one of two reactions. Either they are amazed by what they see and hear and they want to know more like those in verse 12 or like those in verse 13, they dismiss the whole thing altogether and couldn't care less. In both instances, whether inquisitive or dismissive, what's needed is a reasonable explanation. The inquisitive person, as amazed as she may be, needs more than an emotionally charged response to the things of God. And the dismissive person, snide as he may be, needs evidence to show why faith is warranted. And that's what the rest of this chapter is all about, as we'll see. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter stood to provide an explanation for what was happening, then a presentation of Jesus Christ, then an application for those present. And each of these three parts, explanation, presentation, application, reveal God's divine promises made and kept. And here's the takeaway. Because God always keeps His promise. Always. We can offer trustworthy answers to the seeker and skeptic alike. Because God always keeps His promise, we can offer trustworthy answers to the seeker and skeptic alike. Let's read this together. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. But remember, in the first 13 verses, the Holy Spirit has come in power. Came with a, like a mighty rushing wind and with fire. The, the, the believers are then enabled, empowered to speak in the languages of the people. Some want to know what it means. Others are dismissing it and even accusing them of drunkenness. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. (laughs) That's sarcasm, by the way. So it's, it's a wonderful way of diffusing the argument here Peter's using. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Then the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. Father, 
Lord God, we want to thank you for your word again this morning. We welcome its light. Please shine the light of your word upon our lives today. We welcome its truth. May the truth of your word pierce through just the layers of idea and opinion that so often vie for our attention. We welcome the power of your word that it would have its full effect in our lives. So, oh Holy Spirit, would you please enable our hearing of it, our reception of it, and change us by it from the inside out. This we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. So again, in response to the coming of the Holy Spirit, as evidenced by the believer's ability to speak in the languages represented in the crowd, the people are trying to piece together, they're trying to understand what's happening and why. At this point, the Apostle Peter steps forward to provide an explanation by quoting from the prophet Joel concerning the promised outpouring of the Spirit of God. Verses 17 through 21 are initially found in Joel chapter 2. Joel 2 is a warning of sorts that concerns the day of the Lord. Now in Scripture, the day of the Lord refers to the time of Christ's second coming. His first coming was marked by His birth, His life, ministry, burial, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. His birth, life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. But He is coming again from heaven, not primarily to proclaim our need of salvation and secure it for us, as He's already done, but to judge the world and save to the uttermost those who've placed their trust in Him. Joel chapter 2 warns of judgment to come at the day of the Lord. It begins by saying, and so now I'm going to step back to Joel 2 and just kind of quickly walk through that chapter. It begins by saying, Blow a trumpet, sound an alarm, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's near. It, and then it talks about God's divine God's holy, God's perfectly just judgment of all the inhabitants of the earth, how thorough this judgment will be, and how terrifying. And after sounding this alarm, Joel Joel calls for repentance, urging the people to return to the Lord, who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He talks about how God carries a a righteous jealousy for the hearts of his people, yet has pity on them despite their idolatrous pursuits of many other so-called gods. Now, we need to realize that that's what sin is, essentially. Sin is basically idolatry. Meaning that when we desire something more than we desire God, we essentially remove God from His rightful place upon the throne of our lives and put that thing, that person or pursuit, on the throne instead. We begin to love it more than we love God. And God, because He is just and because He upholds what's right, He rightly holds us accountable. And yet this is where things take a remarkable turn in the story. 
As Joel 2 progresses, a chapter that warns of judgment, we find God telling the people of Israel to fear not and be glad to rejoice in the Lord your God because He has promised to pour out His Spirit in ways that urge faith in the Lord so that anyone who calls on the Lord will be spared from God's wrath to receive His grace and mercy instead. Joel 2 is very much an early presentation of the gospel. So now Peter brings this to the attention of those in Jerusalem who were present for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Here's the point. He wants them to know that what they saw and heard that morning was the fulfillment of a divine promise made about 600 years earlier through the prophet Joel. And Joel's description of the last days, meaning the days before Jesus returns, ends with this assurance that it shall come to pass that anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, Just as God has fulfilled His promise by sending the Holy Spirit, so will He save all persons who call upon Christ as Lord. And after explaining the significance of this, Peter then presented Jesus as Lord and his Savior. And here we see how Jesus was like us in some respects, and yet also obviously unlike us. Like us and unlike us at one and the same time. Notice how in verse 22, Peter refers to the man Jesus, to the flesh and blood person from the Galilean town of Nazareth. In this way, he's like us. At times, people refer to the historical Jesus. Have you heard that phrase? The historical Jesus. Meaning that Jesus was a real person with a real name who grew up in a real place just like us. You recall that both of his earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, when Mary was pregnant, were told to name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. This is important because it reveals God's desire to save and His ability to do so, Jesus was, in fact, a man attested to you by God, as Peter clearly states. Now, in this way, He's unlike us. The mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Jesus were demonstrations to show that He was from God and with God and is God. Hear this. What separates the historical Jesus from everyone else is that He was fully human as we are, yet also fully divine as God is. Not part human, part divine, not human with godlike qualities, Jesus of Nazareth is unlike anyone in human history because he is 100% human and 100% divine at the same time. He was a real person of flesh and blood who faced 
real pressures as we do and more, and yet he lived his entire life in unbroken communion with his heavenly Father, and thus he pictures for us the perfect man. Not only did he teach us about God, he showed us what a relationship with God entails and how it looks practically, where we are prone to pursue so-called gods of our own making. Jesus lived in continual fellowship with the one true God, a fellowship he enjoyed for all eternity, and one which we are created to enjoy as well. In our sin... We've fallen from this great privilege, so Jesus came to restore us to the high calling, the high and honored calling for which we're made. He saves us in this way. He saves us from a life of sin that leads to death, to God in whom there's life everlasting. And I want you to notice how Peter tells them that Jesus was in your midst. Church, in other words, he was in and among us. I find this so encouraging because he wasn't like the Essenes of the day who believed that withdrawal from society was the way to please and honor God. He wasn't like the monks of the Middle Ages who sequestered themselves in monasteries for weeks and months on end. He wasn't even like the various groups today who isolate and insulate themselves from real-world people with real-world issues. When God stepped into our world, He stepped into our world. He didn't live apart from us, but was among us. For how could we see and hear the good news of God's love if he kept at a distance? It's this Jesus, Peter says, this one, this very one. There's no need to look for another. It's this Jesus who came to us, lived among us, and died for us in order to bring us to God. Verses 23 through 35 describe the death and resurrection of Christ. I want to spend more time later on this section specifically, but for today's purposes, notice that Peter doesn't pull any punches. To those present, he says in verse 23, and he'll come around to say it again in verse 36, that they foolishly crucified this Jesus, the very one who'd come to rescue them from their own destruction. But God would not be deterred, nor was he surprised. God was involved throughout. 
God is sovereign over all. God knows the end from the beginning. God has set a plan in motion, and thus God delivered Jesus over. It was the only way. The only way to save from sin was to substitute a Savior in place of sinners. And when lawless men killed Jesus, God raised him up from the dead, fulfilling yet another promise, an oath God made to King David, as recorded here in Psalm 16. The promise that one from David's line would be raised from the dead to reign as Lord over all. So Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And these two titles are unique to Jesus. Jesus is Lord, meaning ruler of all, and Jesus is Christ, meaning Savior for all. He who is above all came to save all who receive him by faith. And it says that God did this, that God made him both Lord and Christ. So this is not a figment of our imagination. This is not a fanciful whim or a psychological crutch we need. And this has nothing to do with what we've done or deserve. It's God's doing. It's God's work. God has provided salvation through the Lord Jesus, who is the Christ, the anointed Messiah. Let me apply this real quick. When a person comes to faith in Jesus, he is recognizing that Jesus is Lord of his life. That he acknowledges this fact and he freely embraces the rule of Christ in his heart, in his life. Likewise, when, when a person comes to faith in Jesus, she is saying that Jesus is the Savior of her soul. The only one who can rescue her from her own sinfulness within. So both must be acknowledged, not Lord only or Savior only. Jesus is both Lord and Savior. And we can know this for certain, according to verse 36. Isn't it true that very few things are certain these days? In our pluralistic world, we like options. But have you noticed how more options only breeds more uncertainty. And thus God was saying that in this world, hear this church, in this world of ever-shifting ideas, you can know with certainty that Jesus is in control because He's Lord and that Jesus is able to save because He's Christ. We can be certain because God can be trusted and God can be trusted because his word, his promises made have proven true time and time again. The people here, the people were trying to make sense of what was happening that morning. And Peter's basic reply is to understand it in the context of God's promises, namely in what God is doing in the world through the person of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And at this point in the narrative, the people are moved to respond. We're told they were cut to the heart and asked, what shall we do? I 
I love the imagery here. Peter's words, like a sword in the Spirit's hand, cut through all their preconceived notions about Jesus, all the religious peripherals, all the defense mechanisms they had layered over the years, their hearts now exposed and cut wide open, they'd come under the conviction of the Spirit of God. Have you ever stopped to think what a gift from God spirit-birthed conviction really is. Now, I would imagine, like me, that in those initial moments when the Spirit convicts you, it's uncomfortable isn't it? But that God would do this for us. That he would expose the errors of our ways and the great need of our lives. Isn't that pure grace? The next time you fall under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, praise God. Because in His great love and by His great grace, He is revealing an area in your life that isn't right and needs attention. That's a good thing. And the wound that results when we're cut to the heart in this way is healed only through repentance and faith. You know, when I'm ailing and go to see the doctor, I want to know Basically, two things. What's going on? And what do I need to do? And here, the people in the crowd have already been told what's going on. And now they want to know what to do. And Peter says, repent. And be baptized. You know what repentance means. It means to change your ways. Actually, the root of the word is to consider, to reconsider. It's to consider the path you're on with respect to the path you should be on. It's to turn from growing your own way to go God's instead. It's the complete about face of heart, mind, thought, and life, as Os Guinness puts it. Baptism was commonly understood in those days as being part of one's repentance because the act of Christian baptism is a way of identifying with Jesus. When someone professed faith in Christ, it was assumed they'd be baptized not long thereafter. Peter's not saying that baptism is required for the forgiveness of sins. It's that if God has forgiven your sins in Christ, then why wouldn't you want to declare it by being baptized in His name? Baptism is a sign of true repentance. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. 
How many of you have been baptized? I'm curious. Many of you, most of you. Not everyone. And some aren't, typically for just one of two reasons. Either you don't think it's necessary, or you haven't yet come to faith in Jesus. Now, to those who don't think it's necessary, I want to remind you that it is. Again, not as a way of earning grace, but as an expression of thankfulness for grace. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. You see, this was not a general call to the masses. It was a specific call to each individual. It's as if he would be standing here and saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Church, I'm longing for more baptisms in our midst. Just last Tuesday night, we talked about this in our board meeting, how we all long for this, because more baptisms mean more peop- means more people placing faith in Jesus and more who want to declare that faith publicly. So if you've never been baptized, it's not too late. I think it's important that we talk about these things. Let's talk together about what God is doing in your life and what it means to respond in this way. In fact, we're looking into having a celebration of baptism, a baptism service, Lord willing, in late spring or early summer. So maybe some of you, though most of you raised your hands, though though maybe some of you who didn't, who knows? Maybe now is the time when you would either want to come to faith in Christ or declare that faith publicly in this way. The theme of God's promise is seen again in verse 39. God's promise of forgiveness in Christ and the gift of the Spirit was for the people of Israel who were present that day. We're told that it was for their children, for future generations. And that it was for those in other parts of the world who had traveled to be there. And as the church went out from there into the world, the promise went with them. Right? So Peter said, this promise is for you. It's for your children. It's for those in the world. And now as you go out into the world, it's, that promise goes with you. And this message became the message that we know as the gospel. Therefore, to if I may paraphrase Peter... He's saying this promise is for you. It's for you. If you desire forgiveness, confess to God your need of it. If you desire to be known not by your sins, but by, what, by your relation to Him who atoned for them all, identify with Jesus. If you desire His presence in your life, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When God makes a promise, He keeps it. So consider what it means for you. 
And then church, this promise is for those around you as well. I'm talking about the people in your life every day. This promise is for them. We need not be afraid to be direct with others. To call them to repentance and faith as Peter did, and just as you've been called, when asked, Peter gave a simple answer they could immediately apply. They asked, what shall we do? And Peter didn't say something like, well, come with me to church. Although church is vital to one's growth in the Lord. He didn't say, well, here's what I did. Though certainly our personal experiences can be helpful in the moment. He didn't say, let's pray about it and talk again later. Though obviously prayer is key. His answer, rather, was simply to repent and be baptized. In other words, change your ways. So you're in a conversation with someone. What did you do? What should I do? Change your ways. Trust in Christ. Profess your faith in Christ publicly. Identify with Jesus. Now, not everyone will respond to this, of course, or respond positively. Even here in Acts 2, probably, probably tens of thousands were present in and around Jerusalem at that time. And though the promise went out to everyone, not everyone responded in the affirmative. But 3,000 did. And the church was born. Our role is simply to share God's promises and leave the results to Him. I'm convinced that like those in the crowd, people today are looking for an explanation as to why things are as they are. And to them, if we're willing, we can present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then an application that helps move them closer to Jesus. I'm convinced that the promises of God speak equally to the seeker and the skeptic. So church, let us provide trustworthy answers to people everywhere. Amen. Thank you for our time, God. Thank you for your word. Even now I see the faces of people in my life who would greatly benefit from knowing your promises. 
So thank you for your promises to me, to us. Thank you for your trustworthiness. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. And now will you help us, even as you empowered Peter and the others that day, would you help us to be capable witnesses to these things, to the people in our lives even now. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.